Hello, ASPN listeners. This is your host, Erica Sears, bringing another episode of Big Tourism Your Way. So I'm thinking today that I would invite you to take a break from your office, whether that's a living room, an actual office, your car, maybe you get a work outside, whatever you're doing, let's take a break and go on an adventure, on a vacation. Uh, one thing, you will still be working. So um, yeah, probably working on the ocean, maybe, maybe handling seafood, but don't fret. It'll be great to unplug from your phone, computer, smartwatch, Google Home, Apple Home, whatever kind of technology you got going on, we're gonna unplug and possibly join a crew. There are many different places around the world we could be doing this kind of thing, but today we are headed to Alaska. If you're wondering if I'm recruiting you for the next season of Deadliest Catch, you are wrong, but that would be pretty rad and we can work on it. Um, instead, we're gonna be looking at pescatourism in Southeast Alaska. So what I'm hoping is by the end of this episode, you will learn what it's like to be a commercial fisherman, if even for a few days, how two industries can combine to create a new experience, and how pesca tourism can provide economic stability to rural areas while also hooking into the new trend of meaningful and experience-based tourism. So in order to kind of introduce this topic and analyze this upcoming industry, I have three guests on the show today. Um, very exciting, happy to have all three of them here. And I'm gonna just do a quick introduction for each one. We'll start with John Bonkowski. He is the Knowledge Systems Program Director for EcoTrust in Portland, Oregon. He has over 20 years of experience working on a range of projects from overseeing the technical aspects of EcoTrust marine spatial planning work in Oregon and California, to providing database and technical expertise to tribal partners across the U.S. West Coast into Southeast Alaska. John has focused on supporting communities as they work to participate in natural resource management decisions. Current project work includes supporting the implementation of a new approach to land management in the Kiaquan Community Forest Partnership, partnering to develop mariculture farms in Alaska Native communities, and working with communities to grow their capacity for regenerative tourism practices. Thanks for joining the show with me today, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your invitation. Yeah, of course. Your background is awesome. Um, you're like the perfect person for our audience. I'm sure they're all drooling. And he has a lot of a lot bigger bio than that. So, um, John, you could probably have your own show on on the network. So glad to have you here. Um, I think we'll talk that, about that <laughs> sounds good. Um, I think that it'll just be great having your perspective because you can provide some of the academic side of pescatourism, the research, what you've learned and some of the strategy. And it's so great having that when we're talking about sort of an industry as a whole. Yeah. Well, thanks. So thanks again. We're really, really excited. Yeah. And then in order to kind of, you know, bring this, um, to the boots on the ground, uh, John and I are joined today by Rachel and Brendan Jones. They are the owners and operators of Finn Alley Fishing. So they'll be providing, be providing some of that, what this is actually looking like kind of experience. Rachel was raised in South Jersey, but moved to California at the age of six. She attended Georgetown undergrad and Berkeley Law, 
whoa. She came up to Sitka to clerk for the judge and since then has been bouncing between private practice and public service jobs, including serving Sitka as interim municipal attorney and as magistrate judge. It's important to note, and I love this, that when she arrived in Sitka, she took a Cuban salsa class, as you do when you move to Alaska, and Brendan was her teacher. Three kids, two dogs, 10 chickens, and one sourdough starter later, here they are. Rachel loves to hike, do silks, read, decree, and is a great skier. Thanks for joining me today, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Um, and then joining Rachel is Brendan. So Brendan came to Alaska at the age of 19 to work in the commercial fishing industry. After finishing college at Oxford University, he returned to Alaska to work on crab and salmon boats, sea cucumber dive boats, and seafood processors. He has published work on the Alaska fisheries in the New York Times, The Guardian, Washington Post, and others. A teacher of creative writing at Stanford University, his novel, The Alaskan Laundry, won the 2017 Alaskan Prize. Rachel and Brendan are both fired up about working with the commercial fishing fleet to make Finn Alley fishing happen, and I am fired up to have all three of our guests here. Um, welcome to the show, Brendan. Thank you so much. Really glad to be here. So I thought as a way to kind of start braiding together the three of you and how you came to be on my show today, um, that I have a feeling that Brendan, via a Cuban salsa dance class, kind of roped Rachel into pescatourism. <laughs> so Brendan, maybe we'll start with you and you can describe how you kind of bridged from commercial fishing into pescatourism. If that was a conversation, an idea, a moment, how did that happen? Yeah, it's funny uh, you talk about the Cuban salsa class. I mean, for me, uh, with Rachel, the real clincher was I had just come in from a commercial fishing trip with um, legendary uh, troller Eric Jordan up here, third generation fisherman. And um, it was the end of the season and the boat needed cleaning. And uh, and Rachel came down in her Carhartts and was there scrubbing the moss off the side of the boat. And that's when I truly, I truly knew uh, it was meant to be. <laughs> Um, but I was actually Eric's son, um, Carl Jordan. Um, I was out fishing with, we were at, um, Frederick sound and just doing a, a three week trip down there, um, doing pink salmon. And at night after 18 hour days, we would just start talking about just the numbers of fish we had been killing like 3000 fish a day. And then simultaneously, um, you know, how we were selling them for 50 cents a pound and that led to discussions about how commercial fishermen, especially trollers in Sidka, were really being pushed out of this real tourism boom in Southeast Alaska. And we just started, you know, throwing out ideas, spitballing, and um, we started coming up with that this idea of like, what if we were able to bring people out on commercial fishing boats and show them what it meant to commercial fish and not, you know, kill thousands of fish, but just teach them, you know, the rudiments of trolling, and then at the same time, allow them insight into, you know, the culture of Sidka and what it means to live in a remote community in Southeast Alaska. Um, and the conversation, you know, it really went from there. Well, and was there anybody that was like overhearing that conversation that was like, you guys are crazy, that would never work here? Or were people like, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds pretty good? 
Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, you're out there on the troller alone, and we would each allow ourselves, or Carl as the skipper would, you know, allow us one vitamin R each night, you know, Rainier beer. And so you just had that, the space of one beer can, you know, that was like your conversation time, your window, and, and there was nobody else to judge you. It was just the two of you uh, and the forest and the fish. And so, yeah, it just it just evolved over those three weeks, you know, speaking each night. And we got back to land and started talking with other folks. And, uh, and then you get people saying, you know, you're crazy. It'll never work. It's not safe enough. Insurance, you know, whatever. Um, and then, you know, we come across people like John who I've been thinking about this for a long time and all of a sudden the you know puzzle pieces start to come together. Yeah. And so Rachel, can you talk a little bit about how, what you thought, how you got uh, brought on board with this idea and maybe how that led to Finn Alley fishing? Sure. Uh, so when I, when I met Brandon, he was living on his World War II tugboat, uh, the ADAC, 100, 100 feet long. And he had had the idea of uh, renting out rooms on it, using it as an Airbnb, but hadn't done the legwork to, to get that going. And paperwork is one thing I do excel at. <laughs> um, and so we actually um, worked with the city uh, through their process to start allowing short-term rentals on boats. And we were the kind of pilot project for that and, and got the first approval to have short-term renters on boats in Sitka and really launched an Airbnb business from there. Uh, kept the rentals on the boat going for a while. And then when we, we did buy a house, we bought a house with a few units in it um, and kind of launched as one of the premier Airbnb providers in town. Um, and so then all of a sudden we found ourselves with this great idea for getting people out commercial fishing, a, a client base of, of folks coming up who were interested um, and getting out on the water, getting a really authentic experience, really engaging with town. Um, and, and those two pieces have kind of dovetailed nicely um, to make us be able to offer kind of an, an inclusive day in the life of a fisherman experience, but, but coupled with really being in town, you know, Brennan still fishes, there's fishermen live across the street and next door and um, Coast Guard families who, you know, really have the fishermen's back and are so well loved up here right next door. Um, we just, we able to offer a really, really authentic experience to the folks coming up. Yeah, I love it. Sounds like the ideas, maybe starting with one, be <laughs> one rainier beer, start kind of snowballing, and then you have these Airbnb guests. And I imagine that, you know, before you had kind of when you, maybe when you just first started out that people are like, wow, what, what's it like to go out there and go fishing? Oh, you have spent how many hours out there? Um, were people like just naturally curious about the commercial fishing industry? Yeah, they were. Um, and that's exactly how it happened. And just to give, to provide an example, my stepsister, who um, was working for IBM um, in New York City, just continually, um, you know, for lack of a better word, nagged me to, to you know, get out on a boat. She was just so fascinated and, um, you know, she just wanted to experience what it was like out there. And so I set her up with Eric Jordan, um, you know, the same fellow I was talking about. And he had a week long trip um, up in Huna Sound all planned. And he said, all right, you know, I'll take her. I'll give it a shot. And she was out there for a day and a half. And she said, it's time to come back. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, I've seen what I need to see. I have stories enough. You know, it's time to come back. And um, so, you know, that was a real eye opener um, that this is not going to be you can't turn on the faucet too much. You know, it's 
it has to be curated. It has to be something of a, a drip feed. And so, um, you know, that is just one other step in this whole process that's kind of led us to, to where we are now, you know, allowing people to get out there, but, um, but just not pushing things too hard. Yeah, that makes sense. They want to have a taste of it, but maybe not be worked to the bone or <laughs> get in there and be like, this is the craziest commitment I've ever made. And now we're in the middle of the ocean. So it's and interesting. And, and, yeah. and so, um, Erica, just quickly, I mean, the flip side of that, right, is that, you know, Eric was out there catching salmon and the poundage was great. And he wanted to come back with a couple thousand pounds of fish. And all of a sudden his deckhand is saying, oh, I missed my desk at IBM take me home, you know, so for the fishermen too, it's got to be right because they're depending on a catch, um, you know, a certain amount of poundage. And I think what this model, if we pull it off, um, can do is you can kind of meet in the middle, you know, and so the fishermen don't, they're not going to hit it that hit, hit it really hard that day and, you know, go take, you know, 20 footers out on the Cape, um, in order to catch fish, they're just gonna, you know, be able to take clients out, catch a couple fish, talk to them about what it means, you know, why they're making such moves, looking at the wind, looking at the tides, the currents and everything, and then come back and still make as much money as they would have had they brought in all that that poundage. And I think that's really important. Sure. And I'm sure that as you were kind of learning these lessons, there were other commercial fishermen that were hearing what you were learning and were like, oh man, no way. I don't want to go through that. Or, you know, so you're kind of the guinea pigs in Sitka perhaps. And so where has that brought you today? What What is Finale Fishing and what do you offer at this time? Um, so today we've got, um, you know, of course, COVID kind of threw a monkey wrench in things. We had tours, tours booked last summer that, that canceled and we're rescheduling all of those folks. Uh, but the most exciting thing we have going on is a conversation with Sika Salmon Shares in town, um, which is a commercial fisherman's cooperative. Um, so the fishermen bring in the fish, they own their own processor, and then they send fish out to clients all over the country. Um, kind of one of those subscription packages that have become so popular during COVID, um, but for fresh caught commercial salmon. Um, and, and part of their program is really connecting people with their fishermen and and you see which boat caught your fish and which fisherman caught your fish. And they've been finding that they have a lot of demand for their, their clients to come up here and meet their fishermen, get out on that boat. Um, and they're just building a really, really lovely community um, around these fish and around um, Sitka with so much interest from people across the whole country. And so we're looking to partner with them um, to be, the kind of cushy side of things. So get, get their, their folks out onto their boats with their fishermen. Um, but also, you know, the, the day after when you're all sore from, from being out fishing, get out to the hot springs that local fishermen use and go check out the processor and get a cooking class to learn how to cook the fish like a local, um, and really offer a, a well-rounded experience, um, for their guests and for others. Yeah. And I think that those experiences, I'm sure help, you know, a lot of times talking about building a brand, you know, people love Columbia or they love Patagonia for like who, who they are and what they're doing. And so I believe when people, tourists have that experience and they, they met Brendan and Rachel and their wonderful kids and they got to go hang out with their friends and go to the spa, then yeah, they definitely are more likely to buy and have your salmon shipped to them. So Sounds like you guys are right on the money with sort of building that brand, I guess if you can call it that, but really getting that client base, those loyal customers that love who you guys are and what you're doing. 
Um, so let's bring in John. How did John, how did you or whoever wants to talk about it, come into this conversation? Um, John lives in Oregon like I do. So how did you end up in Sitka? Uh, well, <clears throat> great question. I, um, in my work, uh, am part of a, a network uh, of organizations and individuals called the Sustainable Southeast Partnership. Um, and we are working across Southeast Alaska um, uh, to help implement new strategies that kind of you know, bring together the idea of, of economy, environment, and, and, and equity or, or people and try and put together that sort of triple bottom line um, ethos, I guess, in, into our work. And, and that's a highly aligned with the work EcoTrust does, the, my employer here in, in Portland. And, um, you know, I have, as you said, in my background, I, I've worked a lot on, on commercial fishing, marine spatial planning type projects. And I was involved with a few things in Southeast Alaska, but uh, one of my colleagues at EcoTrust had started a conversation um, with a funder about doing a feasibility report around pescatourism. Um, she was our fisheries director for a, a little over a year. Her name's Kelly Harrell. She is currently actually with Sitka Salmon Shares, um, left EcoTrust to work for them. And uh, but in that time, she was uh, talking with a funder. She uh, convinced them that there was a potential for some something called pescatourism to be, uh, you know, uh, used as a tourism strategy, as a new kind of fledgling industry, if you will, in, in the region. And, um, you know, I, I was pretty skeptical, to be honest, when I first heard her idea. Um, but the funder thought it was a cool idea to check out. And um, the timing of it was such that, we got the funding uh, to do the research, and, and then um, yeah, Kelly left to take a new position at Sitka Salmon Shares. And so um, the work came to me, and I uh, sat back and thought about it for a little bit and was like, how do I go about this? I'm kind of skeptical of this idea. I'm not sure you know, if it would even really be something people would want to do. So I, I kind of broke it down from um, looking at it from a market perspective of supply and demand. And, and so just trying to figure out are there people out there who would be interested in doing this? That seemed like the first question to answer. And, you know, in my research and in my poking around, um, I started to get connected with some commercial fishermen who, you know, were um, a little more gregarious, if you will. Like they were more willing to talk with people and, and potentially that's, you know, a, a big key to this, right, is you have to have skippers who want to who want to connect with other people. A lot of folks who commercial fish do do it so that they don't have to talk to people. Um and so I started getting connected with some folks and, and I was connected with Eric Jordan, who, who Brendan and Rachel mentioned. And um, through the conversation with him, who he is just an absolute delight to talk to, um, uh, he, he told me about Carl and Brendan's idea and how highly aligned it was with the research I was doing into whether or not pescatourism was feasible, at least from a, a supply side, right? Were there fishermen and, and people willing to host guests um, in this model? And um, through my conversations with Eric, was connected to Carl, and, and then Carl connected with Brendan and Rachel. And, um, and then we've kind of been working in this way together for a little bit over the last year and a half, two years, I guess now, just looking at what the possibilities are. And, and um, you know, I'm not certain I've done anything particular to support Rachel and Brendan, but uh, I've done some research into this and, and really came around to the came around to the idea of it being quite feasible um, given the right situation, and, and pretty excited about this as a as a practice. And, and as you mentioned, it's I also see it as a larger strategy of 
regenerative tourism um, as, as a new sort of practice or form of tourism that, that we're hoping to, to kind of uh, get moving in, in Southeast Alaska through the Sustainable Southeast Partnership. Yeah, I love how um, the beginning of that is you, your coworkers like telling you about this idea and you're like, ah, I don't know about this. I'm <laughs> feeling pretty scared. And then it's like, hey, John, it's you. You're doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're yeah. in charge, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. Good. Here's some research. Go for it. Yeah, it was, it's pretty funny that way. And, and what was the what was that, you know, that gut check that said, mm, I don't know about this? Like, what, what were some of the things that were going through your mind that made you feel a little skeptical? Well, you know, I, I think the things that probably occur to a lot of people right off the bat, which is like, hey, this is kind of dangerous work, right? Like commercial fishermen live a, a pretty, um, you know, it's not all dangerous, but you're on the ocean and you're at sea and things can go wrong in a boat. And, uh, you know, we've all watched the deadliest catch. I don't think that that is, you know, necessarily typical of a commercial fishing experience writ large, but I think it is, you know, it, it highlights that there are dangers involved here. And so, um, you know, and, and, and then the, the model of pesca tourism comes from southern Italy. And, you know, that's where this really started like back in the 80s as like a potential uh, way of, of creating a new revenue stream for commercial fishermen there. But, you know, the weather in southern Italy versus the weather in southeast Alaska is, is a vastly different thing altogether. And so it, it seemed to me that like, well, no, this model might work somewhere like southern Italy, but is it, would it work in, in Southeast Alaska? And, you know, that, that was the big skepticism I had of it at first. And, you know, I, I've also, my experience with commercial fishermen is from a bit of a research background and in, in interacting with them in interviews. And you definitely fi- find some that are friendly to talk to and, and interested, but you also find a few that are, you know, they're not so happy to be um, just chatting with you. So, you know, that aspect of it, the sort of salty dog kind of aspect was a little worrisome. Would, would there be enough people who wanted to actually do this, uh, enough skippers who wanted to host guests? You know, that was, that, those were my skepticisms at first. Sure. Yeah. And I agree. That's, you know, some of the things that came to mind too, what I think of if you imagine yourself in Italy and you get to go on the boat and <laughs> what you're wearing, even what the weather's like, and then comparing that to what you imagined would be happening in Alaska, you know, there are some things that come to mind, especially when I work in tourism. So I'm always looking at all the issues and being like, oh man, putting a tourist on a boat. I don't know. Um, but let's jump into kind of what you just started touching on, which is sort of like this salty dog and sometimes adding changes um, into a culture, into an industry. So let's look back. Um, let's just kind of give an overview of what the seafood industry means in Southeast Alaska and what the tourism is. So, John, I'm hoping you can provide some of the, the hard facts. Like, what does that economy look like of the seafood industry in Southeast Alaska? What is tourism? What are the trends? Are these two industries kind of booming? Are they decreasing? Are they on the decline? And then... Um, Brendan and Rachel, if you could provide some of that sort of the culture and the way of life, how the seafood industry is a part of that and has influenced that and kind of how locals feel about tourism in general. Um, so Brendan, Rachel, let's start with you, actually. And let's talk about a little bit of the culture of the seafood industry and the tourism industry. What is it like for those two things in Southeast Alaska? Yeah, well, um, you know, tourism, especially with cruise ships, has been a huge boon for Southeast Alaska. I mean, it's really, you know, let's be honest about it, saved the region. And you kind of have the twin engines of tourism uh, and commercial fishing. And I mean, that's that's a billion dollar industry right there. And it's really replaced um, 
logging uh, to a huge extent. Um, and the problem there is that, uh, you know, commercial fishermen, uh, I mean, you have charter fishermen, and those guys have really been able to kind of join the fishing industry with tourism. Um, and there are a huge amount of uh, lodges here in Sidka, you know, Dove Island and Tallinn and you have these NBA stars and Tom Cruise and, you know, who knows who else coming into town, you know, for the best fishing in the world. Um, and the problem is, is that you get, um, you know, dropping salmon prices for a variety of reasons. Um, and these commercial fishermen are really left in the dust. And so that created a situation here in town, which was hot and heavy when I arrived in 1997, which was this tension between the charter fishermen and the commercial fishermen. I mean, you go into the grocery store and see people yelling over the aisles, you know, charter Nazi was a common term. I mean, they were just butting heads because all these commercial fishermen were saying, hey, there's not money in this. I'm going to become a charter captain and just kill it over the summer. So thus began a divide that, um, you know, Rachel can talk to between commercial fishermen and charter fishermen and commercial fishermen really left out of this in a burgeoning income stream of, of tourism. Yeah. One of, one of the pieces of that too is um, the charter fishermen have access to the cruise ship tourists. So these, these ships come in for the day and, you know, they're advertising their tours right on the cruise ships, pick people up right at the dock and head on out. Um, that's been a little bit different this year with COVID. I think some of the charter quota got moved over to the commercial fishermen mm -hmm. um, due, due to COVID and due to tourism really not happening too much up here this summer. Um, it's a whole separate issue of, of protecting the small communities up here that don't have a lot of medical resources. Um, but it just creates this great moment um, when tourism does does open back up once once the vaccines are rolled out and, and COVID's kind of on the decline um, to really meld those two industries together um, and, and hopefully overcome that divide in town. Yeah. And it's, and actually the way you both have set it up is aligning perfectly with um, John's assessment to study. I forgot to introduce this, but definitely check out the feasibility of pesca tourism in Southeast Alaska, assessing the opportunity for transformative tourism. Um, I wouldn't want my listeners to think I just know all this information off the top of my head. I definitely nerded out and I definitely read the entire report with notes. And what I could see in the notes is, is really complimenting what Brendan just said of when he moved there in the 90s and you see the charter fishermen are starting to piv basically pivot a little bit away from commercial fishing and saying, hey, we have increasing tourism around here. Like, let's jump on board with this. And according to this report, since the 90s, sort of commercial fishing has been on the decline and tourism sort of on the incline. Is that true, John? Yeah, that, that definitely aligns with the research that, that we did and, and, and found uh, through the course of writing the report. And, and, you know, I think a good clarification just quickly is that, you know, pescatourism is not uh, charter fishing with commercial fishermen. It is um, experiencing commercial fishing life, in essence. And um, you're, you're not being, uh, you know, paying a commercial fisherman to go on his boat and find a trophy fish, um, you know, in the best spots. You're going out to experience what life is like with them. And I think um, that's the, one of the differences here that we're trying to highlight with this new kind of tourism form. 
because um, that is what brings the benefit to commercial fishermen. And, you know, fishing in Alaska is a $5.2 billion a year industry. Um, and, a, and a big portion of that uh, does happen in Southeast Alaska. Um, the, the state, you know, is a vast geographic space, but it's only about 740, 750,000 uh, actual residents of, of Alaska. And so it's, it's pretty sparsely populated. Um, but a huge portion of those folks in Southeast still work in the fishing industry. About 15% of the population in Southeast Alaska is, um, is involved with commercial fishing or, or commercial fishing. And a, and a number of those folks uh, own their boats and, and stay or are residents in the area. About 70% of the boats are owned by people in the, in the region. So, it, you know, it, it is an impact. It is a regular economic activity for folks. Um, that has slowly been declining, especially as salmon, um, as the salmon industry has sort of kind of seen some declines over the years. And that's a mix of, you know, reasons, uh, climate change being, I'm sure, among them. Um, there's a huge part of a life cycle of salmon that is hard to hard to capture in management practices. You know, they're out in the ocean swimming around and coming back, and who knows exactly what's happening to them out there. So you know, when these, when these declines are occurring, you know, it's not all management decisions that are, are causing trouble. It's just uh, uh, something that is being faced by fishermen across the board and, and has definitely caused some issues. And so I think something like pescatourism creating a, another form of revenue for commercial fishermen is, is a really nice kind of opportunity for folks to, to put it forward. Yeah, and I'd love to jump into to cruise ships again. And I'm sure, as, as Rachel mentioned, this has been a totally weird year. Um, in fact, I bet instead of wanting to, you know, welcome cruise ships with open arms, people are just like running for the hills. Um, they're like the, <laughs> the the red flag these days. But something I saw that was interesting in this report, um, correct me if I'm kind of not saying this or understanding this correctly, but it looked like Southeast Alaska got about two thirds of the visitors to Alaska but only one third of the revenue. And that was due to cruise ships kind of having that monopoly over the experience tourists have. So even if Southeast Alaska is getting, you know, appreciates cruise ship tourism, it looks like there's a lot of space to kind of move oh, maybe away from cruise ship tourism or even take better advantage of it. Um, am I saying that correctly, yeah, John? That, that is what we have found. And, and look, I you know, agree with Brendan that the cruise ship industry and, and tourism in general has definitely been a boom for the region. It, it has definitely, um, especially as the logging um, industry has has uh, subsided. But what is sort of subtle to that argument is that cruise ships have a bit of an extractive aspect to them as well, which is that these, you know, it's other certain places have dealt with it okay, but like you take example like in Juneau where the cruise ship industry owns most of the of the of the shops um, down near where the boats land. Um, so cruise get you know get uh, ship guests come off the boats and they go to check out little shops in Juneau and, and most of those shops are owned by the cruise lines and so they're not necessarily spending money in the community of Juneau. They're spending money among the cruise lines and so that's why you see that disparity between. You know, two thirds of the visitors are are, for, are in Southeast Alaska, but they're only recognizing around a third of the revenue. Um, you know, in, in the interior parts of Alaska, people have to have to visit communities and have to spend their dollars at places, and 
So, you know, that the cruise ship industry has this interesting tension with the communities in Southeast Alaska. And, and, you know, I think that's also a number of factors there too, right? It's a beautiful place to visit, but, you know, I think somebody, as, as somebody coming from the lower 48 going up to Alaska, you recognize like some of the um, kind of barriers to entry, if you will, like it, it takes at least a couple of flights maybe to get there. Um, once you're there, your options are to either take a cruise ship or to take a, a ferry line or to take a small like um, puddle jumper kind of plane, um, which not everybody's comfortable with. So once you're there, you know, it's an archipelago. You have a number of islands to choose from, but it's not like just driving around like you would in the lower 48 and getting from community to community. So you can see why this sort of happens, right? It's kind of a natural reaction to, to sort of the conditions. And that's why things like pescatourism and, and creating new strategies around regenerative tourism in general are really important because it will help us as, as people working within these communities to find new strategies that draw in, I think, uh, that new trend of visitor who's looking for other things beyond a, a cruise ship experience and something a little more experiential, something a little more, um, you know, hands-on or maybe adventuresome. So I, I think that's, you know, what's really exciting about all this work. Yeah. And Brendan, Rachel, what has been your perspective on how sort of the cruise ship industry or maybe just tourism in general has changed? Have you seen more visitors, you know, just walking around on your streets? Um, has there been sort of a changed perspective on how people appreciate or don't appreciate tourism, specifically where you live? Yeah. I mean, John just makes a number of really good points. And I should say that I, um, when I'm not commercial fishing and doing other things during the summer, um, I work for Princess Cruise Lines as uh, an Alaska kind of representative. The program's called North to Alaska. And, you know, I literally get on in Whittier um, and we, you know, sail amongst the glaciers and I tell them about what it's like to live in an Alaska community, foraging and fishing and show them some pictures and videos of the kids and everything. And then they kick me off in Juneau and I do the whole thing over again. Um, I'm kind of like paraded <laughs> on there and paraded off. Um, and then I fly back home and, and fish or whatever. But um, so that's point one, you know, cruise ships and the people on them are incredibly interested in life in Alaska. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, they want to know what it means to, you know, have a day here and to, um, you know, live with subsistence and, and set a skate for halibut. Um, point two, this separation, um, this real barrier between those cruise ship passengers and the actual communities, right? I mean, in Hunan 2001, um, they built Icy Strait. And that's, it's, it's um, Erica, if you don't know, it's about a mile outside of town. It's an old cannery that was built in the 30s. And it's a super cool building. But I mean, literally, if you're in Huna and you're a cruise ship passenger and you decide to stray from Icy Strait into the actual town of Huna, there is a roadblock that you cannot pass, right? I mean, so you are not allowed access into the actual town of Huna, which is a really, really cool town. It's a clink of community that has a super deep, interesting history. Um, shortly after I arrived here in Sidka, town voted down building a deep water dock directly in the center of town. That did not happen in Ketchikan. That did not happen in Juneau. And so what you have, and I can't tell you how many times I've watched it, or for that matter, Skagway, 
you know, cruise ship passengers get off and they buy a couple t-shirts and they get some caramel popcorn and they kind of cruise around in their little Disney world, Alaska Disney world, where you have dog mushing or nobody dog mushes in Southeast Alaska. Are you kidding? Or, you know, wild West shows or what have you, you know, nobody does any of that stuff. Um, and then they shuffle them back off, you know, to their big meals, um, waiting back on the cruise ship. So here in Sitka, since we didn't build that deep water dock, it's a totally different model. Um, town still exists, you know, cruise ship passengers still shop at Old Harbor Books, you know, the same bookstore that um, that everybody in town uses and Ashia, you know, greets them there. And, and so town for those periods for a couple months becomes very much involved in the cruise ship industry, but we're on the outside. Um, and, you know, cruise ships have to tender people in. Um, the McGraw's built a deep water dock, but it's out the road um, and it's hard to get to downtown. So, the upshot of this all is that we have still like a living, vibrant community, an authentic community. And all of a sudden we're getting these like very small cruises, 60 person cruises, Smithsonian, National Geographic, you know, people who are really, really interested in what's happening in town. And it's just a short leap from that to actually getting people out on the commercial fishing boats to see what it's actually like to, you know, catch fish and, and be a commercial fisherman. And one one of the changes that we've noticed with COVID is uh, I think people are a little bit more gun shy about um, as John said once once you get to Alaska getting around is not easy and you're you have to take a ferry you have to take planes you have to take float planes and um, pre- previously in past non COVID years a lot of our clients have been people um, there's two two cruise companies that actually start and end in Sitka with smaller boats. And we've had people on the front end of their stay and the back end of their stay, you know, add, add three or four days to really check out Sitka in depth because it happens to be where their cruise ship is coming um, in and out of. But I'm finding this booking for 2021, we're getting folks who are, who are wanting to do week or 10 day stays um, with us and really want to just dig into to one community. Um, and I think, I think the trend was in that direction Anyway, I think a lot a lot of people get up here for the first time on the cruise ship. They're only spending, you know, eight hours in a port at most and want to come back for a more in-depth experience. And I think um, COVID and kind of that like, okay, I'll hold, hold my breath is probably bad uh, analogy on the airplane. You know, it will risk the airplane to get up there. But we're finding that people want their own space and, and to stay put within one community uh, more than in the past. Yeah. So it's, I mean, between the three of you, you've provided all these different puzzle pieces that are moving together. You know, even Brendan getting a small taste on these, you know, quick experiences on the cruise ship. People are interested in what is life really like here? Um, You know, what's going on here? We want to learn more. Rachel, you're mentioning that when people had the opportunity to kind of get a glimpse, they're like, wow, I I wish, I think the next trip, I'm going to stay in Sitka for like 10 days. I wanted to like really hunker down and then we're seeing trends where people really want to have more meaningful tourism. They, they want to know where their money is going. They want to spend local. So it's like, it feels like the time is right. And John, I think said like, this is kind of the right timing to start establishing pesca tourism. Um, so it's interesting. I think just, re- you know, having a first conversation with John and then I'm sure all the conversations you've all had when you're coming to the, you know, how do you answer is pesca tourism a long-term solution to, to some of these economic trends that we're seeing in the seafood industry and the tourism industry? 
Um, it sounds like John kind of came up with his answer after being a little skeptical, and that was to analyze the supply and demand. Um, so, John, do you want to talk a little bit about the interviews that you conducted um, to better understand the supply that there was in Southeast Alaska to provide these experiences? Yeah, you bet. So uh, I, you know, again, yeah, coming from a very skeptical perspective on this, um, you know, I, I reached out to a number of folks, you know, people who were both actively commercial fishing um, and, and then folks who kind of worked in the industry kind of from a more, um, you know, I guess if you want to say like a safety aspect. So like talk to a few people who work in like co-ops and whatnot. And it was a mixed bag of their reactions. Some of the folks were really like, I don't know if those will work. But then I started getting connected to people like Eric Jordan and Carl Jordan, who who were really interested in this. And, um, you know, there's a, a there's the, um, uh, is it Alpha, the uh, Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association in um, that's in Sitka there. Uh, they provide uh, an apprenticeship for people. And so chatting with them, you know, getting the creativity going of like, is there a possibility of getting safety training for guests through this um, apprenticeship type program that they have there? Um, You know, that one is definitely focused on getting people out and actually commercial fishing and becoming commercial fishermen. But like if there could be a track for guests, you know, that was some things that came along. And then I started talking with you know, not just Rachel and Brendan, but there's some folks in Huna, as uh, you know, the town that Brendan just mentioned. They're they're looking at this, and their experience would be more about going out and doing crab pots for a day, and then coming back and having like a crab dinner. Um, there's also a form of fishing in Alaska called set netting, um, which is you know, as salmon return to rivers, um, these commercial fishermen pass a net across the mouth. And they connect, they collect the fish in a net. And, you know, that is sort of suited for potential guests because they, these folks go out to like a camp and they have like a pretty rustic camp, but they, they camp out there and then they set up their nets each day and they collect the fish each day. And so you could foresee kind of some opportunities there, Um, you know, and then as I talked with more fishermen, you know, the array of activities that are associated with pescatourism include not just going out on the boat, although that's obviously the most kind of romantic, you know, potential, but it does include just like a dockside visit um, and a tour and maybe like a, you know, a nice kind of communal dinner, like a fish to table kind of dinner, um, you know, or boat to table kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think all of those became really the possibilities. And then, and then doing a little more research into, you know, questions around licenses and insurance and Alaska back in about, I think it was 2013, uh, created what they call a, is a, a guest license, uh, which allows for a guest deckhand, a seven day temporary license. It costs like $35. Um, and that was like a real boon to like a potential idea of coming together here, which is that people could come from outside of uh, Alaska, and they could get a seven-day guest license and be a deckhand um, and be able to be on a commercial boat. I mean, that's another aspect of this is that regulation doesn't allow you to be on a boat without a commercial fishing license while commercial fishing activities are occurring. So they would have to have a license, but Alaska had already addressed that. So, you know, as like, again, these puzzle pieces started coming together, there did appear to be people who were interested especially if we were pretty creative in the variety of options available to guests. And then there were some, you know, regulatory aspects that were already in place, like this guest license. And and that seemed to really 
you know, gin up the idea that there was supply for this market, if you will. There's supply of, you know, commercial fishermen willing to do this. Yeah, I, um, I really got a kick and no one thinks this is as funny as I do, but I, because um, I've shared this with a number of people. But in this report, which everyone can read and access, and John will give you info on how to how to access this, but there's a few examples of the survey questions and they're all, all the answers are written really appropriately, but one that I really, <laughs> really had to chuckle about, just thinking about some commercial fishermen that I know. Uh, the question was, what does not appeal to you about engaging in this type of work? And it doesn't say this, but I think if you read between the lines, it's like dealing with tourists, which is like, (laughs) can be very challenging and also dealing with dietary restrictions. Um, John, I really wish I could have been a fly on the wall in those conversations just to see people's reactions and just the things that they're worried about, which are totally understandable things to worry about. Like, how am I going to run a commercial fishing operation and then also deal with a gluten-free, maybe high maintenance person? You know, like, I really love that. Um, This is kind of a 2021 question, but were you conducting those interviews in person or um, virtually? Yeah, it was a mix. You know, I, I wrote this in 2019. So I had no thought of a global pandemic on the mind at the time. So, you know, on some of the trips I was doing that I, t- I was able to take for, for other work, I was also able to interview people online, but some of the, or in person, some of these were uh, phone interviews or, or conversations that I did uh, with them as well. And, and yes, as, as you said, these are summary example responses. It was much more colorful uh, when, <laughs> when I actually got the uh, responses. And, uh, I knew it. I, yeah, yeah, I really appreciated it too because it was actually an aspect I hadn't considered, which is, you know, I think it was from somebody who had a set net camp, and they were like, "Look, I'm not dragging people five days out into the wilderness and and have a set net camp, and then I have to go back and get like gluten free crackers or something for them." You know, it's so it was pretty pretty funny to to think about it. But a lot of folks have put a lot of thought into this already, which was what was really exciting about it, and and gave me a little. Um, spark that this might actually be something we could do. Sure. Yeah. Then I'm interested too in sort of the demand. So I'm actually really surprised in this conversation, Brendan and Rachel have mentioned quite a few times, um, cruise ship passengers either adding on um, a finale fishing experience at the beginning or ending of their trip. And honestly, when I was kind of reviewing all this stuff, I would love to engage in pescatourism. I could totally see myself going out doing this kind of work for probably four days and loving it. But I'm somebody that I have zero interest of being on a cruise ship. Like to me, I've always thought of cruise ships as being sort of an older demographic, um, older age, maybe a little bit wealthier people. And so I, I guess I never thought that maybe the cruise ship passengers would also be some of the people engaging in this kind of work. So Brendan, Rachel, can you kind of describe to me what trends you see in your guests, um, whether that's like what they're interested in or their age, where they're coming from? Um, what kind of people are sort of wanting this type of um, experience? Yeah, um, I'll just I'll just uh, say real quick in response to John and the dietary restrictions. I was once fishing with Carl and um when you get your food on a commercial fishing boat, when you're out on a long trip, you just hand a list to the tender and they go into town and they bring back, you know, whatever's on your list. But uh, our list got lost and we were essentially out there and we ran out of food. Um, So we were like mixing ketchup and mayonnaise for sauce and like (laughs) 
<laughs> trying to put the gear like way on the bottom to catch halibut because we were so sick of eating salmon. I mean, there was no food on the boat. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> definitely a consideration um, for, uh, you know, for folks on the, on the fishing boat. Um, and as far as, as far as our, um, you know, our demographic that we'd be targeting or people interested in this, you know, Rach has something to say, but I would say that the cruise ship, that demographic, and I, you know, appreciate where you're coming from America, but that that's really changing. And you're actually getting a lot of young families super eager to come up and experience Alaska. And, and I think the cruise ship industry is changing probably in response to folks like Alan Marine who are starting their own cruises and uncruise here in Sidka Smithsonian, National Geographic, what have you. And their experiences are, um, you know, starting to be much more interested in climate change and stream restoration and experiencing a day in the life of town or whatever, rather than just the t-shirt shops and Wild West show and and what have you. Yeah, I think a a big part of that on the the cruises is that, you know, as John was saying, there's there's really not a better way to get around this archipelago. Um, with budget cuts, the, the marine highway, the ferry system that, that locals tend to use, it's only coming into Sika once a month right now. Um, and it's, it's really not viable. And airplane tickets from island to island are very expensive. Um, and so I think you get a, a more variety of who's on the cruises up here because there really is no way to see more than one place in southeast Alaska if you're not, if you're not on a boat. Um, but speaking to your broader point, um, as far as, you know, demographics and, and, you know, really who we're getting for tours and different types of tours, um, it's an interesting question. And it, it's one we started dealing with when we were hosting rooms on the ADAC, this old World War II tugboat, um, and, and finding that sweet spot between people's idea of adventure and their capacity and what's going to be a really fun trip. Um, you know, we had some folks that the ADAC was a pretty rustic experience and, um, some people really, really rolled with it well and were really, really into it. And some people wanted things that were a bit more glampy than we offered. Um, Oh, we could tell you stories. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I was lucky enough to stay on the ADAC. It was rad, but it was definitely, I agree. It it was a little bit of an adventure, but I thought it it was the most one of the one of the funnest thank you john yeah um and so one one of the things we've kind of i just developed in our interactions with guests is is really taking the time to engage in conversations about what they're looking for what's going to make a good experience for them where they're coming from what their ability levels are and that's something that rolls into these fishing experiences of course um both in terms of you know should this person be doing two days or a half a day um and and what can we make the lead up and the training to be so that the experience goes well, you know, and, and on the back end, what's going to make it really fun and exciting too, because it is hard work, you know? So, so does that mean for some folks getting out to the same hot springs that the fishermen's used to decompress? Does that mean having a cooking class so that you can cook the fish you've caught um, bonfire on the beach, you know, um, and, and kind of creating an entire, experience that's both authentic to town but is letting folks have a really good experience um and we see that in the hiking too we were um in our last meeting with salmon shares just talking about how you know people that are really hardcore hikers downtown and and will tell us yes i can do a hard hike and we're like well up here a hard hike means you know you need an ice pick and crampons and and do you know how to self-arrest with an ice pick why don't we put you on what we consider medium hikes to, to gauge that? And that's, that's really um, just a lot of communication 
with the guests to really get um, a sense of where they're at and and what this amazing place has to offer, but in in a way that's safe and enjoyable for everyone. So Rachel, if you were writing a book called Pescatourism for Dummies, um, and <laughs> the, with the targeted audience being like commercial fishermen that are possibly interested in this, um, would you say a piece of advice would be very much so like valuing communications, understanding and managing expectations of customers? It sounds like that is really the heart of making sure that people, that you're knowing what they want to get out of it, but then also managing, you know, that you're not going to have a crazy glamping, you know, experience aboard, you know, is that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, that's totally right. And, and, you know, Rachel's writing the book Pescatourism for Dummies and I'm writing the book, you know, Tourists for Dummies. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. Um, and it's, it's really being a liaison between the two. And, um, and as John was saying, I mean, he's right. A lot of these guys are pickled old salty dogs down on the transients and, the last thing they want is somebody from, you know, Portland or Seattle or God forbid, San Francisco, you know, stepping on their boat with their, all their dietary needs and whatever. Um, so it's really about getting the best fit. And like Rachel said, that and, there's, is, and there's young fishermen, you know, that their families have been here from ever, forever back from college because COVID is happening, who, who have the patience for that and, mm-hmm. and who, you know, can engage in different ways than those old, old salty dogs might be able or willing to. Yeah. And Eric Jordan can get along with everybody and anybody. Um, but he definitely is the exception. Um, so it's really matching people well. And, and like Rachel was saying, that has to do with communication and, and figuring out, you know, who would have the best time together. Yeah. Yeah. Eric sounds like quite the guy. Um, (laughs) so I feel like it would be a huge miss if I didn't at least bring up Alaska's sort of regulatory framework, insurance, permits, licenses, it seems really confusing and it seems like it would be a big hurdle for someone starting a new business. So would you, how, how is Alaska's regulatory framework? Do you think it's supportive of pescatourism operations or does it still need a lot of work? Um, and anyone can answer this question. You know, I think for, for us getting into it has been, um, you know, some, some hurdles and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, you know, a, a trained lawyer. So I think I've been better able to navigate those than other people. Um, you know, short-term rentals, getting short-term rentals onto boats was a lot of working with the city. Um, and then I, as John said, the, the crew license structure is already there, but it, it's really just taking a lot of disparate pieces and bringing them together. And um, what's complicated in Alaska is those disparate pieces are are state and federal and local. We don't have counties, um, so it's just it's just the state government, and then the city and boroughs are kind of one entity. Um, and and with the home rule statutes here, the cities have a lot of um, authority that you might see in counties or states, other places. Um, the benefit of that is that you can walk down to city hall and sit down and have these conversations and and work with people and. Um, we were able to, you know, really engage with the city and getting those um, short-term rentals on boat regulations worked out. It's, it's folks in town that have worked with the city to get um, tiny home structures going, um, kind of all of um, these forward-looking models. Um, it's just tying a lot of pieces together that maybe weren't intended to work together because nobody has sat down and made, you know, the pescatourism commission. Here's this checklist of everything we need. Instead, we're kind of pulling threads from different parts of a a bigger web. Yeah, it's, you know, in Oregon, we've kind of 
I don't think pesca. I know pesca tourism hasn't really taken off. Um, this is so. This is really interesting conversation, but agritourism has, and so um, fortunately, our state entity, Travel Oregon, has worked with agritourism, you know, specialists that have put together these checklists of how to become an agritourism business. Because I know that, especially for farmers, people that are working the land or working with fish, working with logs. Um, it isn't, you know, they might not always be married to a lawyer or be a lawyer. Um, so having like that checklist of like, this is what you need to do. Here's who you need to talk to. This is what kind of permit you need for this situation. What kind of zoning are you on? Um, I know that's been a big conversation here. So it's interesting to see how you've also navigated that. And maybe that's a, a spot that could be really helpful is having that checklist so that it would take a huge burden off of um, an upcoming pescatourism professional. Um, something I also wanted to bring up that I thought I saw in a study, John, is how do international visitors fit into this, especially when it might come to having like a guest permit? Um, are there times where they might be prevented from experiencing, experiencing something like this due to social security numbers? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the, the guest license that a lot that Alaska has available is for us residents. They have to have a social security number because it's about, you know, essentially taxable income from your, um, from your catch and from being on a boat. And so, um, you know, that the guest license that we would be using in pescatourism was really meant to allow for, you know, commercial fishermen to have people come on boat for a, a week. It wasn't necessarily designed for tourism. So, um, you know, that's, that's one aspect to it. So if you're an international guest, um, you know, right now there, that licensing is, is, is not possible with, without a social security number. So, um, you know, I, you know, you would have to look at, uh, tourism pr- that included not going out on a boat and not being a guest uh, deckhand kind of thing if you were to come gotcha. from And Brandon, US. have you um, seen or heard of sort of like an international demand to be on a commercial fishing boat? You know, I think that I'm guessing that there are international people that work, you know, in international waters in the area. But have you had heard someone um, that said like, oh, we really had this this customer who wanted to come aboard, but man, they're international. So they were unable to. Yeah, we were um, actually tackling this exact issue you're speaking of last year because we had some Russians coming to town and um, Rachel and I spent a year on a on Fulbright in Russia and it was folks we were put in contact with and I was supposed to be the translator for them and um, we were just starting to kind of tackle the um, exact problem that John's talking about um, when it became clear that because of COVID, it was June, you know, the trip wasn't going to happen. Um, so that's certainly a challenge. I mean, I think there will be workarounds, but it just gets to the larger point that, um, you know, Alaska and Alaska tourism is, is just going to have to catch up because, you know, this thing is happening and, um, you know, they're going to have to create regulations that are, are built for it rather than depending on, you know, smart people like Rachel to, um, tie everything together for them. Gotcha. Yeah. It's when we look sometimes, um, when we talk with local communities about domestic versus international tourism, a lot of times with, again, COVID's kind of blowing everything away, but with international tourists, we see that they generally plan their trip way more in advance than a domestic tourist because they're making that large trip because it is an expensive flight over. They generally spend more money and spend more time. So it is, it does seem like a good piece to start working in to, you know, bring them back in the fold after, um, COVID-19 kind of restrictions lift up. 
Another sort of insurance question I had um, is I was looking through the Fin Alley fishing website and it looked like in a lot of the itinerary, there was a lot of education built in. So you're going to talk with this person and learn about all the safety measures here. Um, And I totally appreciated that. I worked on a dive boat. And so a lot of times with scuba diving, people are certified, they know what they're doing, but we did try dives, um, which is a nightmare, but people who've never dived before going out with us. And I remember just putting extra emphasis on sort of the education part to prevent the accident part. So I'm curious, Brennan and Rachel, if you can talk about a little bit about um, how you started integrating these education, maybe safety opportunities into the itinerary. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how important um, training for commercial fishing is. So, I mean, when you talk about um, stepping headlong into the commercial fisheries, um, safety is just a huge part of that. So, um, you know, we would work with um, outfits in town to get guest access into um, the leak tank, as it's called. It's this incredible thing that's been welded up that springs leaks from all sorts of areas. And you know, guests would have to try and plug the leaks with this milk crate of tools that they're given. Um, you know, not necessarily they're going to be in the hold having to plug a leak in the middle of the ocean, but, um, you know, it just kind of gives an idea. I mean, you're in there and, and you have a certain amount of minutes, you have a timer on you to stop the leak, to stop the water coming in. It's very simple. And so just to kind of give an idea of the stakes out there and, and um, what, you know, commercial fishermen are facing every day. So, yeah, safety is a huge part of that, and um, and and it's it's part of the culture that we want to um, expose the guests to, but also you know obviously keeping them safe when they're working out there. Yeah, I could see it also being a really cool way. Um, I think there's a certain type of tourist um, that when they have that educational experience, that they're like very proud to share it and teach other people about it, even if they're maybe you know they're not the expert, they're not an actual commercial fisherman, but it is a cool way for them to be able to share that information and for people to have more awareness about some of the education and safety stuff that goes into commercial fishing. So I bet it also really um, just really improves the experience that they have and the stories that they're able to tell, you know, like we got to practice plugging the holes in case we sink (laughs) Um, on their trip. So as we start wrapping up here, I'm wondering if there are any other just sort of huge challenges or um, things that you're thinking through when it comes to pescatourism for your business that we haven't covered. Because one of one of the things here, and and this nice kind of cycles back to the cruise ships too, is there's there's not a lot of buildable land um, in Sitka. We're on a, a essentially straight up mountain that's just sticking out of the ocean and we're just this little sliver of a fingernail along the edge and one of the the ways um that we've seen just really kind of restricted growth is that there's there really is nowhere left to build um you know so housing is tight for locals which makes accommodations tight for tourists and that that's where the cruise ships have been really great because we haven't had to put in hotels that can hold, you know, 3000 people at a time. Those hotels float in and leave. Um, and so for us, one of the things to figure out is, is as we're expanding our, our venture and as we're getting more guests and more demand, um, you know, how to, how to expand in a way that's, that's good for town, that's viable and feasible, but also respects the, that kind of balance we're trying to strike between, um, having accommodations for tourists 
but also having accommodations for local folks. You know, people, people come in to fish for the summer. People come in to work here in the summer and tourists are coming in in the summer. And that, that's, I would say, currently one of the bigger tensions in town is, is how much to build out um, tourist accommodations and how much to have, have long-term housing and, and short-term housing for workers. Yeah, this is, this is, Rachel, you've changed my mind so much about cruise ships in this situation that, that they can be so much a part of the solution with helping navigate, you know, people don't have to plan how they're going to actually get transported around the area, providing the housing and also just physically bringing people. Um, I certainly changed my perspective. So I really appreciate that. Um, John, is there anything that you have been left sitting with that keeps you up at night? when you're thinking about pesca tourism in Southeast Alaska? You know, not really per se. I, I think that there's just a number of things that, that my colleagues and I and, and, and my friends in Southeast Alaska, I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to continue working on. It's, you know, deploying more strategies that kind of build up communities and, and, and refocus, you know, the tourism so that the money is able to stay within communities and, and really reduce you know, the dollars walking out the door with, with tourists and, and sort of, you know, it's, it's a re-import replacement sort of strategy, if, if you know, in economic terms. So it, it, those are the kinds of things I'm really excited about. That's the kind of work we're working on with um, uh, the Sustainable Southeast Partnership with the regenerative, we have a regenerative tourism catalyst. Her name is Mary Goddard. She's actually based in Sitka. She's been helping uh, work through a lot of these ideas and help us put together a, you know, a, a bigger, broader strategy for the region. Um, and I think pesca tourism is going to be a great um, opportunity for folks in the region um, and maybe throughout the state um, as we grow more strategies for regenerative tourism in the region. I'm very excited about and that. And John, if say we have a listener today that lives on the coast of Maine or the coast of Washington, and they're like, wow, I think this could actually really work for our region. What's the best way for them to kind of check out some of the some of these interviews and this work that EcoTrust has been doing? Um, website or? Yeah, I think you know I'm I'm happy to receive email um, uh, from for, from folks or, or or our website. My email is my you know jbonkoski at ecotrust.org or or you can go to ecotrust.org and um, we're actually in the midst of putting together uh, sort of a blog post and more information around our work in tourism and, and the strategies we're looking at. So checking out our website, I will be posting the feasibility report there soon. Um, I actually hadn't posted it yet, which is surprising. Um, and yeah, generally speaking, I think it's, um, yeah, just contacting me or our EcoTrust through our website. Perfect. And I'll make sure I put um, your website in the description of this episode on our website in case listeners wanted to follow up. Um, sorry that I talked about the report. It's not even available yet. Spoiler alert. Oh, no, I, I should have had it up there sooner. I'm sorry. It's, you know, COVID really threw me for a, a loop there. But, uh, as Brendan and Rachel can attest, we've been, yeah, it's been a very slow year. Oh, I can imagine. I just don't want your team to be, like, your team's over there like, Erica Sears just blew our unveiling of this <laughs> amazing work <laughs> as if she was the one doing it. So um, thank you, EcoTrust team. And Rachel and Brendan, what's the best way for people to learn more about the work that you have been doing and what your business has to offer? Yeah, I mean, our website is a great place to start, uh, finnalleyfishing.com. Finn spelled with two N's. Um, and... Uh, 
you know, just reading about Sidka, uh, reading about life up here and getting interested and, um, you know, we're donating 10% back to uh, the Sustainable Southeast Partnership um, uh, towards stream restoration. I mean, we just believe so strongly that John was talking about triple bottom line of people, profit, and planet, that this benefits all at once. And, um, you know, it's it's giving a bit of ourselves and, and taking a bit from others. And, and that's really the essence of what, you know, a good travel experience is. And, uh, you know, with the help of John and, and programs like this, we're just super fired up to get this program off the ground and hopefully have a great summer 2021. 20, yeah, well, Rachel, Brendan, John, thank you, all three of you, for taking the time to chat about this. I know we were just scratching the surface today, but it's really exciting stuff that you're doing. And I think it's something that maybe once you figure it out, um, can be replicated around the rest of the country. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, well, thank you, American Shoreline Podcast Network listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Big Tourism. I hope you enjoyed learning about what pesca tourism can offer to both local communities and to visitors, um, and hopefully are inspired to, when it's safe to do so, leave your working-from-home office um, and go to Sitka, Alaska, and experience it firsthand for yourself. <laughs>